Hey, we're so glad that you're here with us this morning. We're going to talk, uh, keeping on with the surprise series, and t- today's talk is called Surprise, There's No Room. But b- before we get to that, I want to talk to you about a phrase, and this is a phrase that I see everywhere. I mean, ever since, you know, after July 4th and all the Christmas decorations got put out in all the stores, um, I see this phrase everywhere I go. And so, are, are you familiar with this one, Happy Holidays? You've seen this, right? Everywhere you go, happy holidays, right? And, and I was at a, you know, at a, I almost said the name of the place. I was at my local Mega Mart the other day. And there was this big sign that says, happy holidays. And then it has an emoticon on it with a smiley face, right? Now, by the way, just before I, before I get into this, I have to tell you, happy holidays is not my favorite phrase because it gets used in a lot of cases by people who feel like Christmas is some, somehow an offensive term, so we need to replace Christmas somehow. So instead of saying Merry Christmas, we should say Happy Holidays. Just so you know, it's absolutely fine for you to say Merry Christmas to me anytime you want, right? Because I'm, I'm good with Christmas, right? And I think, I think there's nothing wrong with that. If for generations we can say Merry Christmas, I don't understand why we can't do it now. But that's another talk for another day. Um, I want, though, to to push to the back of my mind and to the back of yours any sort of hesitance that we have about the happy holidays phrase in that sense. Because I want to talk about the fact, briefly, that happy holidays is what we all kind of want. Right? I mean, before we ever got to Thanksgiving, months, you know, maybe, maybe in, in September or October, you start thinking forward to Thanksgiving and Christmas and New Year's, and pretty much all of us, what we would like to have is happy holidays. So I understand when I walk into the store and I see the sign that says happy holidays and there's this big smiley emoticon, I get that that's kind of, you know, there's a reason that they put that up there. This is what we all want. My question is, how are we doing with this? And the reason I say that is because as I walked through the aisles of my local Mega Mart, I started looking for faces that matched the emoticon. I could not find them. (laughs) Right? I did find this one, and that one, and this one, and that one, and stay away from that guy. (laughs) And this one, and that one, and that one. Right? And because I kept hearing people arguing with each other and being cranky with each other and and moms and dads barking at their kids and kids, you know, whining at their moms and dads and everybody just kind of, maybe it was just because it was at a store, right? Because everybody's, you know, arguing about, you know, how much should we spend on Christmas presents and how, as a a couples pastor, I'm never going to forget this one, right? This one really sticks out to me because I was in the Christmas decorations uh, area. I I needed to go get some Christmas lights uh, and, and so... I go over there, and I'm looking at Christmas lights, and I overhear this couple talking, right? And I wasn't intending to eavesdrop. It's just my spiritual gift. And um, (laughs) so so she says to him, since it's our first Christmas together, don't you think we should get some special decorations and ornaments for our tree that commemorate this first Christmas? And he said, sweetheart, that's a wonderful idea. I'm really on board with that. Um, why, don't you, why don't you get some ornaments? And I'm going to go get dog food because I, I, I forgot last time. I'm going to make sure I get dog food and take home. And all of a sudden, I saw this sort of like freezing stare coming from her eyes and emanating toward his direction. And she said, dog food? This is our first Christmas together. I want to buy decorations with you for our first Christmas together, and you want to buy dog food? Is dog food more important than Christmas decorations? Is dog food more important than our first Christmas? Is dog food more important than us? And I thought, you know, happy holidays, you know? (laughs) Have fun with that one. Um, 
But you, you get what I'm talking about. We, we, we want happy holidays, but I'm not 100% sure that at least, I mean, I know we all have happy moments during the holiday season, but I'm not sure that we actually have an overall spirit of happiness during the holidays. And if what I saw at you know, my, my local big box store was any indication, this is what I think most of us have. We don't have happy holidays. We have cranky, stressed out holidays. <laughs> True, right? I mean, we do. I, I, there's, a, there's statistics that say that Americans... Only 8% of us, only 8% of Americans say that they are less stressed in the holiday season than the rest of the year. 92% of us say that we are just as stressed during the holiday season or more. Almost half of us say we're more stressed, right? And yet, is that what we expect? I don't think so. I think we expect that it's going to be a relaxing time. It's going to be traditions, hanging out with family, just chilling. You know, it's going to be a good time. It's the holidays. It doesn't work out that way, though. 8% say that it's, it's a relaxing time. The rest of us, are we're on edge. So I have this question that I want to talk about in this talk, and that is, why don't we have happy holidays? Well, there's, there's a good starting point and that, that we can start with, and this is, just a, this is just a starting point. But I would say that one of the reasons why we don't have happy holidays is the holidays are a time when there is very high expectations but there is also very high potential for complications. The fact that there is a turkey butterball disaster 911 hotline proves my point. There's high expectations and high potential for complications. Have you heard about this? There's this thing you can call, right? They're, they're doing it right now. There's 50 ladies somewhere in a room that work for Butterball Turkey that are answering the phone for people between Thanksgiving and Christmas that are having a hard time cooking the turkey. High expectations, high potential for complication, right? This happens for me every Christmas, and there's been a couple things that, that sort of always get me. Um, one I'll tell you about happened this year. About... Uh, few days after Thanksgiving is when my wife and my daughters will mention that maybe it's about time that we put lights, the Christmas lights on the house, which always just causes fear and trepidation for me because I'm I'm not afraid of heights. I'm afraid of falling from heights, you see. Um, And so I don't mind flying. I love flying. If there's something to hold on to, I'm good. But on the roof, there is nothing to hold on to. So just because I'm pragmatic and, and, and I want to be safe, I never stand up on my roof. I have, a, I have a philosophy. There's no point in standing up on the roof. So I scooch around on my rear end the whole time I put the Christmas lights on the house. And the neighbors think it's funny. It's, it's like a tradition now. They come out and watch me scoot around on my rear end and put the Christmas lights on the house, you know. And, um, but the whole time I do it, right, I start off thinking, oh, this is a good Christmas tradition, but I'm so stressed out the whole time I'm on that roof, because I don't do roofs, that I get really tense, and you can, my, my, the muscles in my neck turn into bricks, you know? And, and so I usually just try to do it all by myself, right? Nobody, nobody else involved, right? Because I just want to get it over with. But this year, my 13-year-old um, uh, daughter, she said, can I help? And I mean, that just melts my heart. Yeah, absolutely, you can help, you know? So she comes out, and we actually had a pretty good time. And I was doing better than usual. I wasn't getting cranky and frustrated and upset, and it was just kind of a good time. Cheyenne and I were enjoying talking back and forth and so forth. So I finish, and we step back, and we look at the Christmas lights, and we say, it turned out so good, so good, you know? And I'm thinking, for once, I didn't get cranky putting up Christmas lights. Yay, me, you know? Um, But then, after I put the ladder up, and I'm getting ready to, you know, go in the house and take a, take a shower. I mean, I've got the whole thing is all done, all wrapped up. Christmas lights done for the year. I don't have to worry about it until I got to take them down in, in January. I look up at the, at the 
top of our house and there is one Christmas light that has popped out of its container and is now flipped down. Now, all the rest of the Christmas lights are perfectly straight up and this one is, and there is no way you would miss this. It is in your line of sight no matter which direction you're looking at our house and I know I can't just leave it there. And so I get grumpy, right? And I had a reason to. This cheeky, nonconformist light that won't respect my authority and do what I told it to do and stay in the holder, right? And I'm, I gotta go get the ladder and put it back up on the side of the house. I don't even wanna get on the house and I gotta get back up there and I gotta, you know, move that light and, and, and you know, what's gonna happen if I move it and it pops back out again and I'm, I'm you know, grumbling and, and becoming a very difficult person to be around, you know? And, and I, I feel like in that moment, I start, I start to think, isn't this supposed to be fun? You know? putting Christmas lights on the house? Isn't this supposed to be fun? How, how is it that I'm getting so cranky about this? That doesn't make a whole lot of sense, right? But, but that's, that's not even the worst case. I'll, I'll tell you the worst one. The worst one is, um, for years, my family's had a tradition of going to a Christmas tree farm and cutting down our Christmas tree, which sounds like a lot of fun. It sounds like a lot of fun. Until you get there, right? Now, now here's what happens. We get to the Christmas tree farm, and uh, I'm, I'm, I'm a person with a very short attention span. But for the first 10 to 15 minutes, that whimsical holiday, hey, let's have fun doing this. Let's look at this tree and that tree and maybe this one, maybe that one. Let's look at this one. I'm good for 10 or 15 minutes. But after 15 minutes, the tree that I want is the tree I'm standing in front of, whichever one that happens to be, right? Could be a Charlie Brown Christmas tree. I don't care. That's the one we're taking home, right? But, but my wife and my daughter, see, I'm outnumbered. I'm just one guy in a house of four people, and the, the, the rest are, are ladies, my wife and my two daughters. And they have a little bit more of a concern about aesthetics, right? So they're still very much con- you know, contemplating and considering each tree uh, as we go through. And you know, eventually, we'll come to one that's finally like, maybe this is the one. Good. Thank the Lord. We have found our Christmas tree, right? And I, I get down, getting ready to cut the Christmas tree down. And then all of a sudden, Wendy says, no, wait a minute. This tree has a bald spot. And I say, it's a really good thing you don't choose husbands the way you choose Christmas trees. Uh, (laughs) And eventually we do choose the tree that we're going to get, whichever one it is. And you guys that have been through this experience, you know how this goes. You get to the bottom of that tree because you're getting ready to cut the thing down. And you realize that your precious family has picked the tree with the widest trunk in the entire lot, right? And you're getting ready to cut this thing down with a handsaw. Now you know that this tree farm has, you know, chainsaws. But that's not part of the experience. The handsaw is part of the experience. So, you know, you saw the thing down for two hours and you load it up and, and you take it home and, 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 and you have to cut the bottom of the tree off. Nobody knows quite why. You got to put the thing in this stand and, and you got to try to get it leveled and you put all the stuff in and it's all level, but then you move it a little bit in your living room and now the tree is not straight up anymore and you got to undo the whole thing and start over again and get it all leveled, right? And then come the Christmas lights. And you go into the box where the Christmas lights are, right? And they're tied in knots that no Boy Scout knows how to get untied. Right? And so finally you get those on the tree. And now my precious wife and daughters want to drink hot chocolate and sit down and watch a Christmas movie and enjoy unwrapping the Christmas ornaments and putting them on the tree in the places that they go. You know what I want to do? I just want to go. Right? I mean, for them, it's supposed to be the most wonderful time of the year, and they're getting stuck with Christmas with the crank. 
because I'm in a bad attitude. I get in a bad place. And it's funny because Christmas, the holidays, it seems to be even more so at this point in time. The stuff seems to be more complicated, more things you've got to do, more arrangements you've got to make, more you know, plans that you're doing and, and things that you have to be at and, and traditions that you hope work the same way that they've worked before because if the tradition doesn't work the same way, then it's kind of disappointing. And, and for me, it kind of came to a head. The other day, my wife and I went to go buy some some decorations for this year's fake tree. And uh, <laughs> you caught that, did you? Um, so we're walking through the, through the store and we're getting some decorations and we're talking about Christmas traditions. And all of a sudden I start counting. I'm like, okay, eighth grade, ninth grade, 10th grade, 11th grade, 12th grade. I got five more Christmases before my oldest is coming home for college for Christmas. I thought, what am I doing? How is it that some of the most precious times of the year with the people I value more than anything slip through my fingers because my mood goes to a bad place when things don't work out just the way they should at the holidays? I don't understand that. And so when my dad said, I want you to talk about this topic of there, there being no room and how that was a surprise, I thought, I, I need to look at this because I need some help in finding a way to make the best out of difficult situations or out of maybe less than ideal. Let's put it that way. How to make the best out of less than ideal situations this time of year. And, and the reason I'm making that connection is because it's very important for us to realize as we look at the Christmas story that it it didn't happen in a very sweet, gentle, stress-free kind of way, right? I mean, I love the, the songs that we sing at the holidays. Silent night, holy night, all is calm, all is bright, right? And I love that thought, all is calm, silent night. I've been to some maternity wards. <laughs> I'm not 100% sure that while the song is beautiful, I'm not 100% sure it accurately characterizes what was happening. Personally, I think the Christmas story was a story where Mary and Joseph had a lot of reasons to feel stressed, a lot of reasons to feel disappointed, a lot of reasons to feel like their situation wasn't ideal. Let me, let me show you this verse, and of course, we're gonna hinge off of this a little bit, right? Um, and, and actually, before I do that, I'm, I'm, I'm gonna step back. I wanna do one other thing. I told you that I wanna not let another Christmas slip through my fingers with the people that I love because I get in a bad frame of mind. I want to show you a verse. I want you to, I want, I want you to really key off this verse, because if you identified with any of what I just said, this verse is going to be very helpful, right? So this verse is in Proverbs chapter 4, verse 23, and it says this, Guard your heart above all else, for it determines the course of your life. Well, I've loved this verse for a very, very long time, but this was actually the first time that, this week was the first time that I really started reading what Bible language scholars and other theologians have to say about what is the, the how, if we were to try to flesh out what the language is trying to, to say here in this verse, what would it mean? So I put together a little paraphrase for you, and I hope this is helpful, based off of the, the study that I did this week. Here's a good paraphrase, paraphrase of this passage. Your most important job is to protect your attitude because it determines what kind of life you're gonna have. Your most important job is to protect your attitude because it determines what kind of life you're gonna have. Well, what do we mean by attitude? Because attitude is a little bit of an abstract concept, right? My parents would tell me if I was in a bad place and I was growing up, my parents would say, you need an attitude adjustment, right? Um, and I would always wonder, where, was, where does one go to get one of those, you know? Um, because attitude is kind of an abstract concept. Let me, let me give you this as kind of a working definition. 
in our lives, we have a lot of, of uh, life is a mixed bag and what we go through is a mixed bag. We go through good and bad circumstances. We have good and bad thoughts and we have you know, positive feelings and negative feelings. And, and as a human being, we are capable of holding all of that simultaneously. I can have good and bad feelings at the same time. I can have good and bad thoughts at the same time. But I can only have one mindset, one frame of mind, one overarching direction that I'm pointed. I'm either pointed in a positive direction or I'm pointed in a negative direction. I sift through all of the, the stuff going on in my world and I make a choice. Am I going to be pointed in a positive direction or am I going to be pointed in a negative direction? So what the proverb is saying is more than anything, we need to guard which mindset we hold. We're going to have a lot of conflicting stuff going on in our life, but we've got to be very careful about our mindset, about the direction that we're pointed in life, and, and how we choose to approach things because that determines what kind of life we're going to have. Protect your attitude, our most important job. So how does a person do that? How do you protect your attitude? Well, let's go to the Christmas story and let's take a look a little bit at, at this idea of there being no room, right? So we know this verse, it's in Luke chapter 2, says that Mary gave birth to her firstborn son and she wrapped him snugly in strips of cloth and laid him in a manger, a feeding trough, because there was no lodging available for them. Let's talk a little bit about the scene when Jesus was born. And, and, and by the way, I don't want to ruin anybody's mental image of the Christmas uh, story or your nativity, right? Or make you feel like, well, I've, you know, all of my Christmas ornaments are, are inaccurate now, right? If you're a real detailed person, right? I don't want to spoil it for you, right? But the truth is, well, let, me, let me put it this way. Most of us kind of have this mental image that, that Mary and Joseph show up in Bethlehem at the Bethlehem Motel 6, and they go in, and they ask for a room, and the mean you know, hotel keeper says, I'm sorry, all the rooms are rented out, and I don't care about you people. You have to go away from here, and they go stow away in a barn somewhere all by themselves, and they have you know, the baby with all the animals around, and she puts the baby in a manger. It might have happened something like that, but it's kind of unlikely. Let me tell you what's a lot more, a lot more likely. If you have a Bible that's, that says uh, there was no room for them in the inn, the, the Greek word there that gets translated in actually means guest room. There was no room for them in the guest room. Bethlehem was a small town, 200 or less people is the, is the guest. And so what you have to understand is that in, in Bethlehem, and, and, and let me back up for just a second. Forgive me for, for breaking some sentences here, but Nazareth, where Mary and Joseph lived, was not exactly any place to write home about. It wasn't the greatest place in the world, but it, there was a, a, you know, a thriving trade uh, community there. Joseph was a tradesman. He was a carpenter. Uh, he, you know, he made a decent living. He wouldn't have been rich, but he would have made a decent living, and he would have had a nice house because that's what carpenters did. They, they worked on homes. I mean, besides business furnishings, they would do beams for houses and they would do doors and, um, and furnishings. And so Joseph had the ability and the skill to, to really make his home a nice place. Personally, I think that once he knew that Mary was gonna have a baby, I think he was making all kinds of accommodations to make sure that his wife and baby would be comfortable in the house. Maybe he'd been building this nice little bassinet for the baby. But then they had to go to Bethlehem because of this census. And Bethlehem was not a trade community. And, and honestly, mo more than likely, most Bible scholars believe that Joseph's relatives in Bethlehem were probably peasants. And a peasant home was very different than a tradesman's home. When, when they would go stay with family, if that was the plan, and I think it was, I think the plan was for Joseph and Mary to go stay with his family. A peasant house in Bethlehem at the time would have been a big open room where everybody stayed out in the open together. No privacy. And the animals would have stayed in 
the main room of the house with the family. There would have been a little raised platform for the family to live on, and then all around the edges would have been the animals, the livestock that the, that the family owned. And so I'm thinking that if Joseph is thinking forward to what it's gonna be like when they get to Bethlehem, it's gonna be a real step down from what they're used to at home. I mean, their home, again, is nothing to, it's not a mansion, nothing, to, you know, nothing necessarily very special, but this is gonna be a huge downgrade when they go stay with his relatives. The one consolation is that in these homes in Bethlehem, there was usually a little alcove off to the side. There was usually a little small room off to the side of the main room that was usually used for storage. But if you had guests, you would get all the storage stuff out of there and you would let your guests stay in this little side room. It was a guest room. Um, now, it was teeny tiny, but at least Joseph and Mary could anticipate that when they got there, they'd have a little bit of space to their own. They'd have a little bit of place where they could be by themselves, Right? And yet they get to Bethlehem, which by the way was an 80 mile journey on foot or on donkey. It doesn't sound like a very fun experience to me. Ladies, those of you who've, who've um, had children, can you imagine being very pregnant and being on an 80 mile trek from Nazareth to Bethlehem? I mean, it was, it was a dusty, dirty, um, difficult journey. And I, and I gotta give Joseph props for this by the way too. Because when we were getting ready to have our first child, we lived 25 minutes away from the hospital. And this was very disconcerting to me. Because you know, as a dad, you have this nightmare that somehow you're gonna have to deliver this baby by yourself because you're not gonna get to the hospital on time, right? And uh, so, um, of course, that would have never happened anyway. I would have passed out. In the delivery room, my nickname was Pale Face, you know? Um, so, but this is a long, difficult journey. They finally get to Bethlehem. They finally get to this peasant house of Joseph's family where they're gonna stay. And keep this in mind, ladies, this is not Mary's family. This is her new husband's family. She didn't know these people. She didn't even know this town. She's not used to this place. They show up in Bethlehem and it turns out that his family was not expecting them. They didn't even think they were gonna show up. So they gave their guest room to somebody else. But no worries, you can stay in the big room with the rest of us, right? Hang out with us, with the big family, no privacy and the animals, you know, and so forth. You can stay in here with us. And it is at this point that Mary goes into labor. High expectations, a lot of complications. I mean, after all, this is, this is the, the, she was told, Mary was told, this was gonna be the, the, the person that would save God's people from their sins. Obviously, God should run some interference for this. Obviously, God should pave the way, should make it, should make it be a, a, a not difficult circumstance, should make it a low stress thing. And yet they get to Bethlehem and everything is all wrong. Even the fact that they had to go to Bethlehem, it was all wrong. I guess I'm just trying to make the case that if, if anybody ever had an excuse for a bad attitude at Christmas, it was Joseph and Mary. And yet somehow, they managed to protect their attitudes. I mean, you think about how big a deal that is. Because for a lot of us married couples in this room, if we had to go through all those things, by the time the baby arrives, we would not be speaking to each other. Mary would be saying to Joseph, nice family. Is this, how they treat, is this how they treat their family? We get here, they don't even expect us, right? No guest room for us. Do you realize what a position you're putting me in? Do you realize what you're doing to me by letting your family treat us this way? And by the way, nice thing about being from Bethlehem, if you'd been from Nazareth, we could have avoided this whole thing. We could have stayed home. And Joseph's saying, what do you want from me? This wasn't my idea. Wasn't my idea for the emperor to die. Wasn't my idea for a census to happen. Why are you making this be all about me? This is not my fault. I'm doing everything I can. I've been a stand-up guy. Now, come on, give me a break. And yet, somehow, 
they managed to keep it in a good frame. They managed to have a good attitude and to, and to be happy. You say, now, Jonathan, I don't know that you can be sure of that. How do you know that they were happy? How do you know that they were having a good attitude? Well, that's a good question. Let's look at Luke chapter 2, verse 20. Now, this is after Jesus is born, when the shepherds have shown up and they've worshiped Jesus, which we'll be talking about shortly in the series. But check this out. The shepherds went back to their flocks, glorifying and praising God for all they had heard and seen. And later we'll see that the shepherds were telling others about what they had seen. Now, here's the thing. If you've ever walked up on a marital fight, it is not the kind of thing that you glorify and praise God for, right? Actually, when you walk up on a marital fight, your, your friends are having some sort of spat, you know, and you're walking up towards them and you go, ooh, I don't think I'm going to go have a talk with them right now, you know? I don't think, I don't, I think we can absolutely tell from the narrative of the Christmas story that Mary and Joseph found a way to be happy and not just happy. It was a fulfilling thing for them. It was an exciting thing for them. It was a thing that they, the shepherds weren't the only people glorifying and praising God. I think Mary and Joseph were too. How'd they do that? How do you protect your attitude when so many things aren't going right? And, and, and the, the capstone, the, the pinnacle, the worst thing that happened, check this out. And this is, we're going back to the passage, the main passage we're talking about. She gave birth to her firstborn son. She wrapped him snugly in strips of cloth and laid him in a manger laying him in a manger. That just doesn't, that doesn't, if you're a parent, that just, it just doesn't feel right. I mean, almost now it kind of seems appropriate because we've gotten so used to this being part of the Christmas story. I did a web search for manger and uh, while a manger still is an appropriate term for an animal feeding trough, you're gonna have to search quite a few pages of Google before you finally make it to an actual manger. You're gonna sort through page after page after page after page after page of Christmas stuff because we now associate manger with Christmas. So I don't know that we really have a sense for how, what this must have been like. I was trying to put it in a, in a more modern sense and I thought about the fact that in my garage, I have some cardboard boxes. Right? And, and they're worthless. I, I have no affinity for cardboard boxes, but they store some of the stuff that, um, that I've got stored out in the garage. It would be almost like Mary taking her baby and getting a cardboard box and putting some old towels down on the inside of it and putting her baby in that box. Now you think about how wrong that seems. A beautiful, precious baby, and not just any baby. A baby who's going to be the savior of the world laid in a cardboard box on some old smelly towels. It just doesn't seem right. How can Mary look at her baby in a manger and go, I'm happy about this? How can she have a good frame of mind when so much has gone wrong? Well, I want to take you to a verse, and, and we're going to be done shortly, but I want to take you to a verse um, in 2 Corinthians, because for the first time in my entire life of studying the Bible, this jumped out at me, and I hope it'll be meaningful for you too. The Apostle Paul says this in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 7. He says, now we now have this light shining in our hearts, but we ourselves are like fragile clay jars containing this great treasure. Now keep that in mind, fragile clay jars. And then it says, this makes it clear that our great power is from God, not from ourselves. Well, in uh, the New Testament times, the, the equivalent of, of cardboard boxes were these little clay pots. They were easily broken. They were ch incredibly cheap and, and uh, certainly not a, not a possession that anybody cared about. Um, and they were even used to haul trash. You could haul trash in these clay pots. 
but some people that actually had valuables, that didn't want their valuables stolen, if they were going to leave their house for a little while, and obviously there's no alarm systems and, and you know, no neighborhood watch as far as I'm concerned in the New Testament. I've never seen anything about a neighborhood watch. So what they would do is they would take their possessions, their jewels, whatever they had that, that mattered that was important, and they would put it inside um, a clay pot because it would be the last place a thief would think to look. Because you wouldn't expect to find treasure in a clay pot. Now here's what Paul's saying. Because Paul's talking about the fact that they go through difficult times in his ministry. And he said, but here's the most important thing you could ever know about me. You look at me and you see a clay pot. Or you look at me at my situation and you see a clay pot. It's an ugly situation. I'm, you know, Paul's saying, I'm in jail for preaching about Jesus. That's an ugly situation. It's an unattractive situation. He's like, you know, you could look at me and think, why is he anybody special? I'm an unattractive person. He's like, if all the way around it looks like a clay pot, but inside the situation, inside of me is treasure. He said, because God has placed it within me. And what treasure is he talking about? Personally, I think he was saying inside of me is a miracle. That God has saved me. That God has, has a relationship with me. That's a miracle. That God called me to the ministry to do this. That's a miracle. That God has somehow helped me get out of difficult circumstances every time one has come up. That's been a miracle. The fact that God is changing people's lives. That's a miracle. The fact that God's let me help start churches. That's a miracle. And he's like, you know, yes, look at me. Look at my situation. It's all unattractive. All you're going to see is a clay pot. But I'm telling you, inside this unattractive clay pot is a treasure trove of miracles that God has put there. And he said, here's why. You know, a, a person would put their valuables in a clay pot so no thief would steal them. That's not why God does it. He says, God does it because he wants to make it very clear that the miracle is from God and not from ourselves. The miracle is from God and not from ourselves. How can you look at the Christ child in uh, an animal trough, a clay pot, and see something good. Well, it's understanding that this is the way miracles happen. I looked through the whole Bible looking at miracles this week, getting ready for this talk. Do you know, I couldn't find any miracle that happened in an attractive situation. Every miracle that I found started with a ridiculous, unfortunate, attractive, sometimes ugly situation. See, that's the thing. God wants us to understand that he wants to put his signature on things that happen in our life so that we'll know it's him. He wants us to be able to look at certain things that happen and go, that must have been God because that's the only way I can explain this happening. See, if something wonderful happens in an ideal situation, that's what we expect. We expect wonderful things to happen in ideal situations. A miracle is something wonderful that's hidden in an unattractive situation. A miracle is treasure that's been hidden in a clay pot. I think that's why Mary and Joseph could look at a beautiful baby in a manger and say, this is a good thing. It's a miracle. You see, now, Jonathan, that's good in concept. That's good in concept. But what about practically? How does a person do this practically speaking? You know, to turn around your attitude when things aren't going well, that's a hard thing to do. How do you do that? Well, for a second, I want you to think about it this way. Imagine that you're a reporter at a big newspaper and you've got an article to write. You've got all these sources, conflicting sources. Some of them say different things. You've got some good sources and, and some sources that are negative, and you're working through all of that. Eventually, you've got to write a story. Now, a story, most of the time, has two special features, right? One special feature is a headline. 
And the headline has a specific job. The headline tells people what is the most important thing. What is your conclusion? What, as the reporter, what is your bottom line on this story? And what do you want other people to know before they know anything else? And then there's one other special feature, and that is a footnote. A footnote is what you tell them after you've told them everything else. And it's really not necessarily key to the story. It's just something that you're telling them in the interest of full disclosure. The headline says, this is the most important thing. The footnote says, oh, by the way, in the interest of full disclosure. This is what I've done wrong in the past with my attitude. I've put the information in the wrong slots. Let me show you what I'm saying. So when it comes to our you know, lights on the house thing, my headline would have been, rogue Christmas light forces reluctant roof revisit. Right? Footnote, dad and daughter talk, laugh, and have fun together. Right? Or how about this one for our lovely Christmas tree experience, right? Picking Christmas tree, huge hassle for Hoovers, right? Footnote, family celebrates Christmas and grows closer. You see the problem? I need to flip the story. Because what I'm saying is the footnote ought to be the headline, and what the headline is ought to be the footnote. That's why Mary and Joseph were so special. I mean, think about the order of what we read in Luke, right? The headline is, she gave birth to her firstborn son. That's the lead story. That's the first sentence that you see, or the first phrase that you see in the, in, in the text. And then, footnote, there was no lodging available for them. See, here's, here's the power that you have over your attitude. You can't orchestrate your circumstances. You cannot orchestrate things that are going to happen that are difficult or challenging or less than what you expected, but nobody has the power to write the story but you. The only person who picks the headline and the only person who decides what belongs in the footnotes is you. How do we, how do we have happy holidays? Well, we have to be careful with our headlines. What's going to lead off the story? I'm going to tell you this, this story and then I'll, I'll be done. <clears throat> so, um, I mentioned earlier I have a 13-year-old daughter, and uh, she's, she's a precious girl. I'm so thankful to get to be a, a dad. Um, and and um, I do try to be a good influence on her, but sometimes I fail at that. And, and one example of when I failed at that was the other day. I was taking her to school. Now, <clears throat> my, my family and I live in Derby, and so we have a little bit of a, a drive uh, to get to work or to school, and, uh, but it's not bad. You know, how, you know how the Wichita area is. You can get anywhere pretty quickly. And when I first moved here, it would take about 18 minutes to get from uh, home to work or home to the girls' school. And, uh, but those of you who have the same drive I do, you also know that the city of Wichita, whom I love and, and care very much for and I'm very, very thankful for, have very quickly cut down all of my paths to work by tearing apart the streets that I drive on right? And tearing apart my exits that I need to use to get where I need to go. And so I've, you know, I've been asking the Lord to help me develop peace of mind about this, but this particular morning I was already, you know, hassled and stressed out. And uh, so I was taking my daughter to school and I went way west of where I needed to go just so I could have a nice clean path north. And I'm going down this street and they had cut off a section of the right-hand lane. Now, I didn't know they were just doing some drainage work. I really did believe that, again, they were cutting out one of my main streets that I could take to get somewhere. And I got very upset. I didn't even think about the fact that Cheyenne's in the car. And I said, this is ridiculous. I said, I don't know what the city of Wichita has against me, but they have absolutely made it so that I cannot get where I need to get in this town. I cannot get you to school in less than 30 minutes, and that is ridiculous. 
And then I realized that I wasn't exactly being, you know, uh, the perfect example of a father that, you know, I'm, 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 man, I'm really, I need to just chill here. I need to calm down. And about a minute passes, I don't hear anything from Cheyenne. And then she turns over to me and she says, well, you know, Dad, um, I'm, I'm not upset by that because I really am kind of happy I have more time to be in the car with you and talk. Man, you want to talk about having to learn a lesson about putting the headline and the footnote in the wrong place. You know why I think Joseph and Mary were able to manage their attitude in a difficult situation? I think it's because they didn't want to miss the miracle. I almost missed the miracle. Let me tell you what. To have a seventh grade daughter that wants to talk to her dad, that is a miracle. <laughs> and I almost missed it. See, the thing about it is, I don't know what's going on in your Christmas. You may have way bigger complications than a turkey not getting done on time or a tree not being the right one. You may have some huge complications this Christmas. But nobody but you gets to determine what's in the headline. Keep in mind, God hides miracles in clay pots. And don't miss the miracle. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for the fact that you love us and that you do put miracles in our lives in the places that we would least expect them. Help us not to miss those and to focus on what you're doing in our hearts and lives this Christmas season. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you so much for being here this week.